This is a McKillop podcast. Welcome to Exploring Curiosity, Resiliency, and Hope. A podcast for times of challenge and transformation. We are excited for your presence as we learn, grow, and evolve from a multitude of voices and wisdom. This is a space for conversations and curiosity, finding ways to be resilient with all that is happening in our personal lives and the world, and maybe finding an embodied hope to live by. We join our host, Trevor, in conversation with Dr. Rita Nakashima-Brock, who is currently the Senior Vice President for Moral Injury Programs at Volunteers of America. Dr. Brock is a leading expert on moral injury, which is the internal crisis and suffering that results when one sees or does something that goes against one's own moral code. She has personally experienced the devastating and life-altering effects of moral injury after her father returned from the Vietnam War. She believes that moral injury is part of many of our lives as we navigate what faces us, the pandemic, climate change, violence, racism, war, or intergenerational trauma. As soon as I hit college, civil rights work erupted, and that led to anti-war work. And so I became um, a political activist in college, and that informed my entire career as a theologian. I, I have been interested in the question of the forces that cause human suffering since I entered college. And racism was one of those, and war was another, and sexism, it was got at, all these things kept getting added to my list of ways that people live in systems that harm them. Dr. Brock was raised in a military family and was the first Asian American woman to earn a doctorate in theology. Rita was director of the Radcliffe Fellowship Program at Harvard University a fellow at the Harvard Divinity School Center for Values and Public Life, and a visiting scholar at the Star King School for the Ministry in Berkeley, California. In 2012, she co-founded the Soul Repair Center with Colonel Chaplain Herman Kaiser Jr., U.S. Army veteran, and directed it until May 2017. Her most recent book is Soul Repair, Recovering from Moral Injury After War, co-authored with Gabriella Latini, the first book written on moral injury. You can learn about Dr. Brock and her work with the Volunteers of America and their unique moral injury initiatives and the work they do at www.voa.org forward slash moral injury. It's such a privilege to have you on the show today, Rita, to discuss moral distress and moral injury and to hear your wisdom and, and how we work with these things. And so welcome to the program. And what would you like for us to know about you as we begin this conversation? I think it's important to know that I um, am a product of multiple cultures. Uh, I started the first part of my life as a child in a Buddhist family in Japan, a Japanese Buddhist family. Uh, uh, My stepfather was from rural Mississippi. He's the father I grew up with. Uh, My my mother married when I was two and a half. Uh, And he became a major factor in my life when I was five. And uh, we transitioned to a military base where I switched from Japanese into English. 
uh, and I, I didn't retain the Japanese. My mother didn't encourage it. There were all kinds of reasons for that, I think, that were um, her commitment to making sure I had a, a successful start in the United States as a child growing up in the United States. Uh, so that, that was a dramatic loss and shift in my life at, uh, between the ages of five and six when I did that transition. And then I was raised in a military family uh, until I went to college. So, uh, and my stepfather was a combat veteran, uh, first of World War II and before he met my mother. And then later on, when I was in high school, he went to Vietnam on two tours. Uh, so my concern for moral injury in military veterans really originates in my own family background. My father was very different when he came back from Vietnam and we were estranged until he died eight years after he came home. Mm. Uh, so that's affected my life. It's it's meant a major disruption in my relationship to my family right at the time I set off for college. Mm. Um, but also growing up in a military family meant I grew up in an integrated military. Uh, so I didn't have that experience um, of segregation uh, in the 50s and 60s that affected a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And um, I spent three years in Germany. So I also have... Um, uh, education that, uh, including in German language, we were in a German uh, in a German area on a military base, um, and an interest in European history and European music and all kinds of things. I was exposed to in junior high and early high school, um, and that's just I'm not uh, dif that different from other military brats, is what we're called. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we we our experience of growing up American is. It's actually quite different from people who, you know, were born and lived in the same town until they went off to college or got jobs and moved mm -hmm. other places. Um, I, I talked to a, a person one time who'd been in 12 different schools by the time he was in sixth grade. Wow. And his was a fairly extreme example, but I also experienced um, moving from you know, Fort Riley, Kansas, to Launch Tool, Germany, to Barstow, California, as part of my upbringing. And mm -hmm. when people ask a military brat, where are you from? Um, it's a puzzling question. Yeah. <laughs> and I usually have to say, well, do you want to know where I was born or where I live now? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and and there isn't a place in between there from where I was born and where I live now that is a place that I would call home. Mm -hmm. um, it, it reminds me of uh, uh, PKs, pastor kids, in the same another, or diplomat kids, Di yeah, that's or right, missionary kids. There, we're yeah. all. Uh, uh, there, there actually have been parallels drawn around that because so many military or so many families make a lot of decisions related mm. to the well-being of their children. And they will, you know, refuse a promotion because it means yeah. kids have to change school at the wrong time. And they make it so the children are a major focus of the family's yeah. life in the in a military family. The person in the military's job is the focus and you have yeah. to go. You don't have a choice. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so the or the way the families orient is often a little different in terms of what's valued for the welfare of the children. Mm -hmm. um, so, part of your your personal experience with the military and your father 
um, led you to 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 get to a moral injury, or was there a was there a route in between? Where is in between there where was you are a now? Route, a lot I'm of just in curious, between, actually. Yeah. Um, I if you'd have told me when I started graduate school that I would end up my life working with military veterans and talking to generals in the Pentagon and um, mm-hmm. and 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 really feeling like this was powerful and meaningful work, I I would have just thought you were from Mars or something. It was like <laughs> uh, inconceivable to me because I entered college an anti-war activist. Hmm. Um, and I don't know that that was informed directly by my experience with my father. It's just so that was my generation. Mm-hmm. And, um, and as soon as I hit college, civil rights work erupted, and that led to anti-war work. And so I became um, a political activist in college, and that informed my entire career as a theologian. I, I have been interested in the question of the forces that cause human suffering since I entered college. And racism was one of those, and war was another, and sexism it was got at, all these things kept getting added to my list of ways that people... Uh, live in systems mm-hmm. that harm them. So you so, you yeah. you ended up in theological school. So you went from Buddhism to Christianity, if I hear you right. Yeah, uh, in an odd way. Mm-hmm. I, I um, Christianity, growing up in military-based Protestantism, uh, in sort of, I had an understanding of the Bible. I actually, read it when I was from cover to cover when I was about ten or twelve. Because Sunday school teachers said you should do that. Um, and I learned a lot about in Sunday school about Jesus and, you know, the Gospels and things. But it didn't make a lot of what I would call emotional sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it felt a little alien. Jesus seemed a little bit like a rude person. If you're Japanese, the way, he, you know, he's uh, so bluntly and mm-hmm. all of that didn't didn't seem that appealing to me. Um, but I, but I went in high school, uh, as my dad was in Vietnam, a Baptist fundamentalist Baptist ministers daughter became a good friend in high school. And I wound up going to the church and he was just a very good minister. Hmm. Um, and he took kind of looked after my mom and looked after us without us even thinking about that's what he was doing while my dad was gone. And so I actually chose to be baptized so I could be a member of his church and not an outsider. Um, so I made a confession of faith that was linguistically what I was supposed to say, but I don't know that I felt it. Yeah. Um, and so I would say that I became a Christian in in my uh, biblical classes in college. Um, my my first class was in literature of the Old Testament, and that's where I learned that Jesus belonged to a very long legacy of people struggling for justice. Hmm. And my own activism and that mm-hmm. lineage connected in college for me, and I finally understood, I thought, who Jesus was. And then I thought, this, I could belong to a tradition like this. Uh. And so that's how I became part of the Christian tradition. And then that's why I got in really interested in a biblical studies. Mm-hmm. And then when it, and I actually could read biblical Hebrew in college as I took an independent study in yeah. Hebrew. I was that interested in the yes. Bible um, and in biblical literature and in, in just religious literature in general and, the, and I, you know, theology, philosophy, all that stuff in college. But then feminism arrived at the end of my senior year in my life. And all of that looked pretty awful. <laughs> mm, <laughs> it was suddenly yes. very male dominated, very yep. uh, Western oriented, all of these things. And so um, 
And you'd think that, and this is something I learned in my class, you'd think that if you expose people to the problems, you know, like these Mm -hmm. issues of oppression built into a system you thought you were going to be part of that was really appealing to you, um, and you had to pull back, that it would make you want to leave and give up. And Mm -hmm. what I found is instead, people want to engage with those questions to see if they can be fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would I would introduce in my when I was as a grad student teaching Bible classes at my alma mater, I would op- I would you know early in the semester just lay down those Deuteronomy texts about rape, which you know makes it, uh, it mandated that um, a woman has to marry her rapist. Mm. Yeah. One of the Kate, one of the examples, yeah, and uh, which would be shocking, <laughs> shocking to yeah. me that that's in the Bible, right? Yeah, but it would make the women want to figure this out. They would get more engaged with the material because they had an emotional investment mm. in understanding mm-hmm. it and how to deconstruct it. And that's yeah. what happened to me. Yeah, and so the more I got into the the not the biblical questions but the theological questions about yeah. the sanctity of masculinity mm-hmm. in the Father God and in Jesus as a Savior and all of those things, um, uh, uh, I'll tell you the story of how this mattered to me. Yes. In graduate school, I didn't want to deal with all those questions, so I decided I was going to do interfaith dialogue because mm. that was also part of my family background as yeah. I had a Buddhist family and a Christian family, and I didn't believe in missions. I didn't think my Japanese family needed Christianity. So how was mm. I going to put those two parts of myself together? So I did all of my coursework thinking that would be my dissertation. Oh, wow. Including studying some Japanese language and all of that. Yeah. And then I had a, a, I think the second year of my graduate work, I had a course on Christology mm. from uh, this amazing professor who'd been the dean at University of Chicago Divinity School, Bernard Loomer. Hmm. And the whole way through it, I was so upset about the patriarchy and Christology, Mm. all of this God, this, you know, Jesus as God, this male person. Mm. And even though that was in, especially in Protestantism subdued um, because, you know, because it was not, and did ordain women, but, yep. but but it was still a huge problem. So I, I wound up writing a pretty angry end of the semester paper about the fact that that was all we had looked at, was mm. all these white men talking about Jesus. <laughs> uh, it was not a feminist text, not even a liberation or a yep. colored text to sign in that course. And um, and so I, I turned the paper in late because I, I got an extension because I was too angry to write a paper for a while. <laughs> And I had to digest some of it. So so I turned in this 25-page kind of rant, feminist rant. And mm-hmm. the professor made a two-hour appointment to talk to me about my paper. I thought I flunked the class. And instead, he walked me through my paper page by page. And he'd given me an A on it. Wow. And then he looked at me and said, you need to write your dissertation on this topic. Mm. And I said, Why? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, because you have a deep emotional investment in this topic and you will see it through to the end. He's, and I, he's, I said, yeah, but everybody's telling me this is like 1979. Wow. Yeah. Saying to me, I said, everybody says, if you do a feminist dissertation, you won't get a job. Hmm. And he said, 
it doesn't matter. He said, because you have things that you're saying things that no one has said before. Hmm. And you have enough of an emotional investment in this topic um, that you will finish your other topic. You'll get bored and, and leave. Oh. You won't finish. He just said that flat yeah. out. How did he know that? <laughs> of course, he, he was retired and taught a lot of students, so he had some idea. And I and I so I I said I'll think about it. Mm. And I thought about it for an entire year before I changed topics. So I did all my coursework outside the area I wound up working yeah. well, or or not focused on the area I wound up working on. Yeah. So um, it took me an extra year to write a dissertation proposal, but I wound wow. up writing on Christology wow. because he was right. I wow. had to figure out whether, and I, and the question I had to figure out in grad school was whether it was possible to be a feminist and a Christian at the same time. Hmm. And and looking back as we're meandering our way to yeah. to to it is, um, do you do you do you think there's moral? There was some degree of moral injury in some of that work, or if you didn't look at it, would there be moral distress or? Yeah. It would be morally incomprehensible to have remained a Christian and a feminist at mm -hmm. the same time if I hadn't figured out a way to find my way to a solution to that yeah. dilemma. And actually, trauma was my way into the figuring it out. That mm -hmm. that what I um, I actually wrote my doctoral thesis on how certain forms of Christian theology. Uh, echo what abused children say about their parents mm -hmm. and how destructive that was yeah. and how there is another way to think about Jesus and God mm -hmm. that don't reinscribe child abuse. Mm -hmm. so, I, so already in my doctoral thesis, human suffering and forms of human yeah. suffering were the lens at which I looked at theological questions and answers. Mm -hmm. um, so, so you know, now looking back, I think, well, it's sort of logical. I would have wound back up at moral injury, yeah, <laughs> because it's an it's um, I think an ancient form of suffering. Mm -hmm. um, well, even in your one of your books, I call "Seminal Saving Paradise," mm -hmm. um, you're really looking at that topic in a, another lens around. Uh, it's a big word for people that don't say, you know, substitution atonement yeah. theology and and the the trauma and violence around that theology, too. Yeah. And Rebecca Parker and I both, in an earlier book called Proverbs of Ashes, described mm -hmm. our own journeys to mm -hmm. a critique of that theology. Yeah. Her from having deeply imbued it as a child of, of a Methodist family that you that suffering makes you closer to Jesus and um, and you shouldn't burden other people with your suffering, that you should be strong enough to bear their suffering uh, without imposing yours on them. Um, and so she was unable uh, as a child to express that she had been uh, sexually abused by a neighbor when she was four and mm. lived with that until she was 36 mm. and finally got into therapy. Um, and, and that story is her uh, being freed from that burden of that theology, so, you know, mm -hmm. after years as a minister even. Yeah. Um, and in my case, it was not having been fed that theology for most of my life and finding yeah. it 
odd and hard. It was just, it was incomprehensible to me. It wasn't that I hadn't had experiences of suffering as a child, but Mm -hmm. I had had a pretty safe and beloved family in Japan. I mean, I, I had the, the value of feeling deeply loved and valued Mm -hmm. as a child Mm -hmm. and not having been abused. Um, I, I don't, I have no recollection of all of any kind of abuse. So, so that I had that. And so the, the theology just didn't make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. but I also, uh, you know, knew it was, it was sort of like the only way you could be Christian was to believe that Jesus had died for your sins because yeah. you were too sinful to save yourself. Yeah. And um, I, re- I remember in sixth grade, I was at a revival thing and this preacher was going on and on about getting saved because there's, you know, you're going to go to hell and all. And, and we were supposed to close our eyes and raise our hand if we wanted to be saved. And I, as a Japanese person, was not going to ever walk up and make an emotional spectacle of myself in front of a bunch of people. But, you know, close eyes, raise hand. I thought, this yeah. is my chance to get saved. This is my yeah. chance to get saved without having to do that. Yeah. And I sat there with my eyes closed, and I thought to myself, I'm not that bad. Hmm. I'm not that bad. Mm-hmm. So I refused to raise my hand, and he went on and on. I thought, I'm the only person without my hand raised. <laughs> We're going to be here all night. <laughs> um, but he quit after a while. And, and then he he had us open our eyes. And then he had everybody who raised their hand to go forward. And I thought, oh, it was a trick. Uh, and then only a handful of people walked forward. So I mm. thought, oh, okay. I didn't have to raise my hand. Yeah. And um, and I have I just always had that resistance to this idea that I was so bad that this horrible thing mm-hmm. had to be done on my behalf. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so Rebecca and I come at the question from different life experiences, mm-hmm. but we settled on this sense of how damaging that yeah. theology is um, in a lot of ways. One is the mm-hmm. idea that children are born needing to be disciplined and fixed yes, rather than being blessed with a love that helps them flourish and blossom as their mm-hmm. adults. Mm-hmm. And, um, but also the idea that then as an adult, suffering makes you closer to Jesus, mm-hmm. that, that there's something sanctifying about suffering yeah. rather than just it being part of life and yeah. you, um, that you get through not because you're holy because you suffer, but because there's something else in you that loves the world. Mm. That, that there's a part, you know, that you endure the suffering because of love for the world and others, mm-hmm. not because the suffering is what sanctifies you. What is moral injury? According to Dr. Brock and the Volunteers of America Shea Moral Injury Center, moral injury is the suffering people experience when we are in high-stakes situations, things go wrong, and harm results that challenges our deepest moral codes and ability to trust in others or ourselves. The harm may be something we did, something we witnessed, or something that was done to us. It results in moral emotions such as shame, guilt, self-condemnation, outrage, and sorrow. People may also do things to survive that violate their conscience and believe they are no longer good. What are the symptoms of moral injury? People will often feel grief, as well as guilt, remorse, shame, outrage, and despair. They lose trust in themselves and their moral foundations. 
their relationships may be disrupted because they cannot trust others not to judge them, and they self-isolate. They may mask their inner pain with alcohol or drugs. They can become alienated from societal norms and lash out in anger at the slightest provocation. Can you help us sort of like a, a few definitions? Like what, what is moral injury um, as we sort yeah. of skirt around it? Yeah. And how is it different like some mental health categories like PSTD and other things like yeah. that? It's okay. I don't, I don't consider moral injury a mental health problem, although I think mental health services can be helpful. Hmm. So I don't, I don't think it's a either or. In fact, I think the whole tendency to fight domains and do either or thinking is a problem for moral injury because I think it's much more comprehensive, mm-hmm. um, a kind of suffering that goes at the core of a human person's identity. Uh, and we all need some kind of moral identity to function in relationships. Uh, and that comes from our core need for love. Um, and it's, you know, there's plenty of evidence that you can feed and keep a child clean and healthy. And if it doesn't have love, it will die. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That emotional neglect is a form yeah. of abuse yeah. because it's like withholding food. Mm-hmm. Um, it's essential for lo- it's essential for life. And that need in human beings, I think, is the core of our being moral, born moral, mm-hmm. uh, is that need for love and the way we maintain relationships in all of our dimensions of life is by being a good person. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's sometimes trivialized as being polite or having good manners. Uh, But it's very much Canada. Canadians say sorry a lot. (laughs) (laughs) But that is how, how one signals that one is a moral Mm -hmm. person, right? Mm -hmm. It's simple signaling, but it's important signaling. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, if you're in another culture and people don't do that signaling in the same way, you can feel really weird or they can regard you as odd, yeah. a little off. Right. So, so it's, and that little offness has moral, has a moral quality to it. Yeah. Right. It's a judgment. And yes. so, so the, it's so imbued in human societies that we don't even think about how important morality is and our, and our, and our conscience and being moral. So when you are in a situation where that capacity, your capacity to to know what to do mm-hmm. um, isn't clear or is taken away from you uh, because the situation is so devastating, there's no good choice possible, mm-hmm. um, be, doing something horrible, uh, it affects everything about you because it, it, it's at the core of your identity that you have done some kind of violation. Hmm. And it can be because of something that was done to you that you were helpless to prevent. Okay. Uh, so you can, you know, that that's Jonathan Shea's definition is that moral injury is the violation of what's right by someone with power and authority in a high stakes situation. And you are betrayed by that person. Okay. And that I think explains a lot of um, child abuse and sexual yeah. abuse that you uh, that, that somebody with more power than you that should have been the person who took care of you or at least should have been moral yes. is and yeah. it's and you're damaged by your some people feel contaminated mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. you did things to survive that mm-hmm. you're ashamed of okay right so all of those factors strike at the core of your very being mm-hmm. 
um, and it's your physical being, it's your emotional mm-hmm. being, it's your mental being, it's your spiritual being. Yeah. All of that. That's moral injury. Um, so, it can also yeah. be something you did, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. you did something, like you had to lie a lot to survive, yeah. Yeah. Or, or in a case of a veteran, you killed someone, and now mm-hmm. you're living with that. Um, mm-hmm. Or you just witnessed something. You, you could be, for example, in a family where you witness physical abuse of a parent. Yes. Right? And you, you can't stop it. You feel ter- it's a moral judgment against mm-hmm. yourself also uh, uh, and not just the abuser. So it can be something you witnessed, something you failed to prevent. Mm-hmm. Those are all those, those all can be so devastating to your core sense of being a good person who can mm-hmm. function in the world. Um, it, it can break that core self because the morality you thought you knew and could mm-hmm. function by no longer works. Oh wow! So your whole your whole global system of being a self in the world is is disrupted. That's pretty profound, isn't it? It's <laughs> devastating. People yeah. take their own lives because yeah. of it. they can't they they can't find a way to live anymore and so make for, meaning. So, for example, in in the veteran population, both Canada, United States, there seems to be higher suicide rate than the 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 baseline population and and is that part of the reason why yeah in the united states i've just been looking at these numbers in the united states in in the last 20 years we've had the longest wars in our history Mm. both of both wars did not end well yeah um and so there have been seven thousand casualties a little over seven thousand casualties and not casualties deaths yes <laughs> i'm going to make that distinction a casualty is somebody wounded or dead sure seven thousand people who were killed in iraq and afghanistan that were in the u.s military or contractors employed by the military mm-hmm. um there have been a little over thirty thousand suicides in the same period of time in wow. veterans mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of that generation of wars yeah so so that dwarfs the the kill rate by a lot it does um and then there are 1.8 million uh veterans with disabilities mm. uh, and that can be a mental disability like PTSD, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is a kind of disorder where your brain fear system is malfunctioning and there are good therapies for it yeah uh, and they get better and better. It can be uh, because you had a psychotic break mm-hmm. of what because of what happened to you, yeah. or it can be you feel like a miserable human being or contaminated by evil, which would be moral injury. Yeah, and all of those are effects of a devastating thing like war. Yeah, you know, and, and in Canada right now, we're sort of having a reckoning with our First Nation uh, siblings. Yeah. And and the realization of really there was genocide over uh, hundreds of years. Yeah. Uh, we have residential schools. Uh, we're finding unmarked graves with children in them. Yeah. And would would that would there be moral injury? If from your perspective, I'm curious, would there be moral injury and moral distress from all of that process yeah. too? Yeah, I think it happens in a a lot of complicated ways. There's the the phenomenon of intergenerational trauma and i think intergenerational moral injury as well okay. uh, um that that you know if you become aware of previous generation suffering and you've been taught this you know great ideal about your country and you realize oh no it did all these yeah. awful 
something. Yes. It's a real reckoning in your own sense of belonging to a nation or a people mm-hmm. um, or a race even. Yeah. And, uh, and that takes a lot of processing. Um, and uh, so it can be that kind of inter- intergenerational thing or, um, and it can also um, be something that um, is a complex problem, a conflict between groups mm-hmm. as they fight for space now in the present. Um, yeah. and, uh, and, and what does it mean to uh, relate to each other mm-hmm. having this history um, and having to admit to it? I think, mm-hmm. you know, in the United States, we face that um in multiple dimensions because of covid the mm. first dimension was the the clear disproportionate death rates yeah and what that said about our 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 not just our history but the state of the country in relation to those histories so so it's not like it was a passing it's like still these things these things are operating now oh yes they are there's so the it's real. It's it's not mm-hmm. just memory. It's real. Um, so there was that, and then there was the murder of George Floyd, which exposed again um, a legal and law enforcement system mm-hmm. that was also disproportionately uh, stacked against certain groups of people. And uh, and then there was the emergence of all the research and the rise in anti-Asian hate crime. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, and most people don't think of Asian Americans in, is, as victims of racial hate crimes that yeah. much. And now suddenly that's, that's another um, thing yeah. that emerged with COVID that the country is having to come to terms yeah. with in the midst of um, huge political uprisings of white supremacists. Yeah. Uh, so this is we're, we're in a pretty sad state right now in the United States, I think, around a lot of this stuff. And part of it um, is I, I I think that that kind of hatred and rigidity and uh, uh, intractability of um, certain forms of identity mm-hmm. that are at the expense of others is actually a symptom of moral injury. In a system, in a systemic way, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is a moral. This is a a meaning system that places moral value in one identity over against another identity. Mm, yeah, and that kind of uh, animosity mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, as a as a piece of the structure of identity um, is. Uh, fed by by anger, aggression, and fear, mm-hmm. and those are all uh, elements of what can emerge in moral injury, an unaddressed moral injury. Yeah, I, I don't mean uh, living next to the United States. You're, you're like we call you an elephant. We're the mouse in <laughs> Canada, and you know if you roll you. But it's like the tension in the United States is so extreme right now. Yeah, between. Uh, you know, duality of, of views. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, um, it's been a, it's become a kind of perfect storm of strands of things that originally may not have felt like they were all that connected Mm -hmm. that, that happened with, um, uh, 
the a reaction to the great society and civil rights work that really began to change American society quite considerably in the 1960s and 70s. Um, and then you have, uh, and it also, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency and other things began uh, to um, change a lot of things that corporate America had to do. Um, and so uh, I think it began with Reagan, the reaction against that kind of society where uh, pr- corporate America became privileged and um, unions were destroyed. There was an agenda to destroy unions and, and people's movements that were fighting for even more uh, equality. And um, and that that began to take hold as huge dimensions of American life got privatized into corporate hands. Mm-hmm. So you have our tax dollars paying for the private administration of prisons and military contractors and um, the building of toll roads, people had to pay to you. I mean, there's just some mm-hmm. utilities, which used to be mm. public. Yes. So so the privatization into corporate hands of much of American public life together yeah. um, has resulted in rising poverty um, mm-hmm. as, as tax rates went down for corporations and wealthy people. So so the Reagan, I call that the Reagan revolution, yes. um, is it ha- was quite successful because it were it was very systematic about getting people elected who shared their values and then making them pledge to be beholden to those values. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I think that that resulted in a large segment of the population f- whose sense of life. Expected the the kind of lives they expected were greatly diminished, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and that included the rust, what we call the rust, rust belt. belt. All those industrial jobs, union jobs disappeared. Yeah. Right, it's all now service work and retail at minimum wage, yeah. um, and that and and so you can see the white supremacist blocks rising in the mm-hmm. country in mm-hmm. some of those areas where those declines happened. Yeah, um, and uh, and so that I think. The misery, the suffering of that demise of life expectations and meaning and purpose um, was then channeled, that kind of frustration, humiliation, and anger was channeled Mm -hmm. into blaming the wrong people, Mm -hmm. blaming immigrants and people of color for taking away jobs when they didn't take away those jobs. They are just competing for what's left. Yes. Um, and uh, and then feeding a kind of race hatred out of that. So I think it's almost like Trump was the next logical step mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. Reagan revolution process. But what that yes. meant is that one political party is now trapped yes. in that script. And yeah. they've been and they're still working to maintain power by denying votes to all the new immigrants and people who mm-hmm. were supposedly taking away the jobs. Um, and um, so I don't know how all that's going to come out, but I think we're in terrible straits right now because that agenda has been so successful. So like moral injury is both personal and systemic. Deeply and it, systemic. Yes. You, and you can't separate the individual from the system, right? if I hear that right. That's right. Because meaning systems are relational and the need for love is relational and the need to be moral in order to have love is a relational problem, right? Yeah. And and then we have have the pandemic on top of that, which would you say that is 
adding to moral distress oh, yeah. and moral it injury? Yeah, it's a whole sort of like, like a, an iron anvil in to- mm. on top of all the stress that was already brewing in the culture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it and it what it did was it it just um, it's a different metaphor. It it just threw open and exposed mm. all of those divisions and mm. suspicions and yeah. strange things perking along that were part of the conflict of American culture. Uh, it just made them worse. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The same uh, thing's and, happening in Canada. Yeah. And, and of course, part of that was the, the sort of um, uh, people think it's sort of like the religious conservative Christian right and everybody else. But I actually think it's more around people who need authoritarian systems to feel safe and, mm-hmm. to, and to connect to other people who have um, very little resilience for tolerating ambiguity mm-hmm. and being able to make judgments about conflicting pieces of information. Mm-hmm. It's just they mm-hmm. want somebody to tell them what to think of it, and then they're going to go with that no matter what, even if it kills them. In Alberta, we have some of the lowest vaccination rates in Canada. We're more wow. like Texas, and yeah. we have well, we have uh, a lot of Texans yes. that kind of yes. go back and forth to work the oil fields. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. then we have a huge um, anti-masking and anti-vaccination group, and 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 sort of freedom. And our hospitals are are getting have been overrun, and I, I my fear is nurses and doctors are facing moral distress and moral injury as they have to decide who gets care. Yeah. Well, and uh, have to put aside how they mm. might feel about two people. Yes. One of whom refused to be vaccinated. That's right. And they're and, in the hospital now. And, and you have to choose between the two and you can't use the fact that they refuse to be vaccinated as a reason to deny mm-hmm. them care. I mean, mm-hmm. that is a very, that's an extremely complicated process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it's it's I would not want to have to be in that position. Um, my my friends who were doctors in Vietnam say what they're having to do oh. that triage stuff. They don't train you for that in medical mm-hmm. school, but mm-hmm. people who worked on battlefields in medicine know what that's like, and it's awful. It's just awful thing to have to do. How do we work with this moral injury, or do we need? Is there a difference between moral distress and moral injury? Well, I think moral distress can um, become severe enough that it becomes moral injury. But I think we all pretty much as humans experience moral distress from time to time, you know, maybe not on a daily basis, but Mm -hmm. we stumble upon something that we can't make moral sense of and we have to sort it out and we may do something wrong and then we have to figure out how to make amends or fix it if we can possibly and and if it can't be fixed we have to figure out how to kind of live with it and integrate it into our lives uh and most of us are able to do that and still maintain our relationships with people we care about yeah so but you can you can accumulate so many so many of those kinds of things that pile Mm -hmm. up you can um, become so worn out and disgusted about the people who won't be vaccinated and that you just say, I'm not risking my life anymore for this and walking away from a, a career that was your life purpose that yeah. you have invested so many years in and you yeah. thought you did well and you just leave it. That's a huge break. Well, they say we're in the great resignation period right now. That was yeah. in The Economist. Yeah. 
And um, and in and I think in you know in the U.S. we have a lot of for-profit medicine, and that mm. the weaknesses of a system like that have been fully exposed by COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I think it's a terrible thing that you would have businesses can only make money when people are sick. Yes, yeah. They feed on that. They need yeah. people to be sick, right? Yeah. So that yeah. is, I think, a, a fundamentally immoral system. That yeah. My, that's my opinion about a lot of U.S. healthcare. Uh, I'm not the only one who feels that way, and more and more people are beginning to feel that way. But, but the the when it, when it becomes moral injury, when you have um, someone in an what what you will know when you when you you're experiencing moral injury or somebody else you know may be experiencing is that they have a character change. Hmm. That they they make that may be that they leave a a career that they have a major yeah. break in things that have mattered to them for a very long time in their life uh and so it can sometimes it's you know it's pop psych is identity crisis sure um but it is that kind of interior meltdown and often when people are in that state they're feeling lots of complicated feelings like shame or guilt or a kind of fury they can't control mm. Or humiliation. Yeah. And underneath all that is often a lot of grief also, mm. um, unacknowledged grief. Um, and that's just a huge wad of yeah. emotional pain that people, uh, you know, try to push down. But it's moral pain because it's a it's a it's the break in your meaning system. It's a it's a crisis in your sense of the rightness of the world. Mm. And it's really hard to climb out of that without being able to connect to people you trust. And that's the big hurdle. Wow. And with our vet, I've worked a lot with veterans with moral injury. And a lot of them have said to me, I I never told my therapist stuff. I told in my group. Mm. Because... As useful as mental health services can mm-hmm, be for mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. in a crisis, you know, you yeah. can, sometimes they're on the verge of killing themselves or yeah. they're, they're about to over, overdose or whatever. Yeah. The, the mental health service is really important in interventions mm-hmm. in those kind of crises. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a mental health relationship with a therapist is a transactional relationship. Um, it's, it's a good transactional. I mean, the yeah. point is to deliver services that really help the person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but the fact is that it's an, it's a, not a parallel relationship. It's, it's mm-hmm. one way. Uh, yeah. mostly. The yeah. therapist's job is to evaluate and diagnose and fix. Yeah. And the client's job is to share their most horrible things, mm-hmm. their, the things that are most interfering in their life. And yeah they succeed in that relationship it's good for the client mm-hmm. but after you've borne your soul to this person you're not allowed to see them again mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and moral injury is a relational problem of trust and sustainable yeah. relationships and so while mental health therapy can be an important intervention it's not the the long road to recovery what you really need mm-hmm. is people you can trust who know who you really are including yeah. all those things that you have suffered and carried mm-hmm. and um love you mm-hmm. and hang in there with you as yeah. you as my one of my veterans friends say they are with you even when you were hard to be with mm. uh, and we're uh, willing to sustain 
um, yeah. some, uh, in you know, just moral distress themselves from the process, but would hang in there with you yeah. um, to validate the journey you've been on and who you are as a person from from the beginning of that journey, not just because you've come become better. Yeah, yeah, right. And that's um, that's not an easy process for either side. No, that, this is like, in some ways, this is a major, pro, profound, experiential, I have all these words coming up, paradigm shift in, like you said, it's not easy. You have to recover and reconstruct a sense of self after more. And injury. meaning and, and connection meaning. to the yeah. world that it makes it worth living. Yeah. People stop living by drinking. Yeah. Using drugs, overworking to exhaustion so they don't mm. have to think about things or feel anything um, uh, or taking their own lives. Yeah. And this can be any number. I mean, it could be any number of things, the systematic things as we talked about. It could be climate change. Oh, yeah. It could be um, racism, uh, patriarchy, all like we just go through all the systematic things and then that's it, personal abuse and trauma um, which aggravate all the yes. others they're, they they're co-aggravating it's um it's bad enough even if you've had a um this is jonathan chase point even if you had a wonderful childhood and you're a very stable adult with a good character still have an experience that just wrecks it uh and we all need each other You do some really simple, I don't, I don't know if group work's the right phrase, yeah, but could, could you talk about that for we us? Had a, we had a two-year pilot program where um, a, a team of eight experts helped me create a program to help veterans with moral injury. And uh, and we didn't know what it would, how it would, we had some ideas about what we wanted it to do, but we didn't know if it would really do those things. And so we ran a pilot for two years out of our Volunteers of America affiliates in New York and Los Angeles. And this is a 50-hour, very intense process um, because it takes that to help people dredge mm -hmm. up everything they need to, to yeah. deal with. And then they may not dredge up everything, but enough that they feel a lot better at the end. And so the program wound up uh, being really successful, like be really beyond my expectations for mm -hmm. positive change. So, so um, we expected that before and after the after would be very high, but six months later, life would intervene. Um, and what we discovered was it's true. Six months later, life did intervene and some of their markers for improvement went down, but they never went back to where they were okay. when they started, which yeah. was good. But then there were other, there were some markers like mm -hmm. the propensity to trust, a sense of optimism about life and a sense of self-worth that kept going up six months later. Hmm. So we thought that was that was really good. And so mm -hmm. when COVID hit and we couldn't meet in person anymore um, with these within these groups, we thought, geez, you know, moral injury is going to be a problem everywhere in healthcare. Mm -hmm. It's not just going to I mean, it's never been just veterans, but the focus yeah. had been on veterans. And we realized we needed to shift our focus fast. Mm -hmm. But we also knew nobody had 50 hours to give. Yeah. And so we thought, what could we do in an hour with people? What could we, if we put them in a small group for an hour uh, and and help them share their moral distress, how 
would that help them keep going? That was really all we were trying to do was to keep people going during COVID. And so we we pulled together our veteran facilitators from our peer. We use we use peer support work and we pulled together our veterans who've been facilitators of our program and said, you know, if we only had an hour, what would you pull out of the program that you think might help? And so we took their advice and created a one hour online program for small groups of up to 10 people uh, with one or two facilitators, depending on the size of the group, um, to give people a chance to just talk about moral distress that they're carrying Mm. Uh, and and end on a positive note of affirmation Mm. for the fact that that they're still alive and still there. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, we launched that last June um, and for our own employees, because we have 5,000 frontline caregivers in Volunteers America. Um, and, uh, and then we slowly kept expanding it to all of our employees and then to other people. And eventually last January, we opened it to the public. And so you, you just go to voa.org slash rest. And you can find the program. And we have artists and teachers and students and doctors and nurses and first response. We have all kinds of people who, social workers who, ministers who use mm-hmm. the program. Um, and the hardest part is get, has been getting people to try it. Mm. Um, I think... Number one, it's it takes an hour. They have to schedule the time um, yeah. and sign up, and, and it takes an hour, and things intervene. And so, you know, our sign-up rate usually fills up the groups, and then half to two-thirds show up. But that's yeah. okay. The ones yeah. that show up benefit. Um, but it's been um, – it's just been like pulling teeth to get people to try it once. Hmm. Um, and I understand yeah. why. Yeah, I understand, I understand totally why. Um, but we're about to start um, in a couple of weeks a, a private area for veterans only. Hmm. Um, and and so in that hour, what's the process? What's what's process, sort of the container for the, the, the container is really is mindful breathing. Hmm. Uh, we use it um, to help people listen mm-hmm. with their hearts rather than their minds, because mm-hmm. um, really when people are coming with moral distress, their capacities for empathy are often reduced because mm-hmm. they're, those have been completely depleted, especially in chaplains and healthcare workers yeah. who are helping people die a lot. Um, so we, we use mindful breathing uh, and guided meditation, which is part of that breathing experience, mm-hmm. and to help people get in a space where they feel able to share the pain they're carrying. Mm. And, um, and, and because they're sharing that pain, mm-hmm. sometimes for the first time, that may be the first time they've talked about something that happened that they need to talk okay. about, um, they're also, for the first time, hearing themselves, <sighs> right? They've yeah. been trying not to feel it, not to hear it, and suddenly it's there. Yeah. So we use the breathing to help people be silent after people speak. <sighs> So that silence, I think that silence is sacred mm-hmm. because the hearing that happens doesn't just happen for the group. It happens for the person who shared, mm-hmm. but it also, when the group is listening and feeling the feelings of the person, the, their sense of empathy comes back. They realize they yeah. still have it. Yes. Um, and it feels good to be empathetic, right? It's, yes. it's, a, it's a capacity of love. And so 
So it helps people, that breathing process actually slows down their stress levels. We know that it actually works on your body to reduce cortisol. So we, we tell them you can use this anytime. So you're learning a skill in the group, but you're mm-hmm. using it. And then we guided meditation. And then the facilitators are taught to make sure that if somebody shares anything very intense, that you have the group breathe. Hmm. And that breathing, that silence is magical. Wow. And somehow we are able to do that in an hour. And most of the time, people who need to share get to share. And generally, when you have a group of 10 people, not everybody is in a crisis state. Yeah. Yeah. You know, somehow people figure, somehow it manages to work out. Um, and, and just that, just sharing once mm-hmm. the difficulty in your heart and having a group of people say, yes, mm. true. They validate that you feel that way. Yeah. That makes you feel more real, um, mm-hmm. more connected to yes. us, right? Yes. So then at the end, there's an affirm. You, would people are just asked to say one thing they're grateful for or one, you know, thing that's positive about themselves. Mm-hmm. It's up to the facilitators which question they <laughs> um, But so then it, people can remember that. They can leave and say, yeah, this was, this is something mm-hmm. I'm grateful for. This is, and, and for often they say, I'm just grateful for the group to be, to have been here for me today. That kind yeah. of thing. And somehow we, it, it seems to do enough in an hour that people return when mm-hmm, they need it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and the surveys we asked people to fill out at the end, you know, ask them to say, I felt this way when I came in, now I feel. And generally people have a positive experience. Um, and uh, even, even if they've only done it once, they, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. We, I've, I've heard people say, oh, I tried that once. It was really helpful. So well, come back, come back, yeah. come back anytime. Um, so, so that was what we tried to do during COVID, um, was just, um, make it possible for our employees to hang in there and, um, and for others as well. Uh, and we, we now have clients that have, uh, we've prepared special programs Mm -hmm. for their, you know, like a nurse, uh, graduate nurses for one healthcare company and, um, and for, uh, retired people, people who've been victims of Mm. fraud. In some ways, that sounds really easy. <laughs> well, it is um, at one level. Uh, yes. The, the hard we we have really good facilitators. We have we've used the veterans that were in our program who are highly seasoned facilitators, mm-hmm. and they're now trainers for for new facilitators. Mm-hmm. But we but the new facilitators have been through the program, so that's a big advantage because mm-hmm. they know what it is, yeah. um, and so. Uh, and we have a, a system way we do the trainings, um, yeah. including apprenticing with one of our trainers for your first few groups. So mm. you feel confident doing it yeah. uh, and you could run it on yourself if by yourself if you had to. Yeah. Um, so we, so that part is not the hard part. The hard part is getting people to use it. Yeah. So do, do I hear you right that you're saying that part of the way that we can like reintegrate and heal from moral distress and injury is by being listened to and by feeling deeply held and trust a, a, a community of trust. Yeah. Which is why we have this course for ministers. We think this is a natural mm-hmm. for religious groups and congregations. If people understand what moral distress and moral injury are and could mm-hmm. learn this kind of quality of deep listening is often mm-hmm. You know, as a spiritual care provider, you're often 
trained to pray or to offer something mm-hmm. to the person mm-hmm. rather than silence. Yes. Right. And often people think you're supposed to give them advice. Yes. And um, and and I think that that can actually suppress what someone needs to let go of because mm-hmm. it someone else is speaking and it silences them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and- and has and does and moral injury from your perspective, uh, is there a quality that there is this silencing sometimes with moral injury? Well, with moral injury, one of the most important problems with it is that you don't trust anybody anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The immune system doesn't make any sense, yeah. and you also feel so terrible that you don't want anybody to know how you feel because they might not want to be around you or love you again. Yeah. So there's a the self silencing that goes on around mistrust and shame mm-hmm. and those other things. Um, and so you wind up in what one veteran called existential solitary confinement. Mm. Well, that's that. Could, wow. And to break that solitary confinement is a crucial thing. And to share some of the worst things you've done or experienced, you need someone you can trust not to judge you. Yeah. Not to be evaluating you. Well, that's hard to find these days, some isn't it? Yeah, it's basically like you're saying, what a good friendship is, right? It is, and, yeah. and and I do agree with you. Nothing wrong with counseling, therapist, all that, but it is transactional. Yes, like, and it it can be quite. I mean, if I have somebody who's suicidal, I'm yes. not experienced enough as a clinician. I'm not a clinician, mm-hmm, like, you mm-hmm. know. So I yes. don't. I would I would feel much more comfortable somebody else yeah. trained in that could handle yeah. those things. Yeah. So we and in fact all our peer specialists, all our facilitators mm-hmm. are backed up by a clinician so they know they don't have to handle yeah. something that they don't know what to do with. That's right. But we have had veterans go through our program, one who had a you know, well, one we know of who told us he had a dissociative personality disorder. Mm-hmm. He did fine. The group he when he shared a, a sort of outrageous story from childhood that if you were assessing it for vet, mm-hmm. that validity didn't sound plausible at all. Mm-hmm. The group didn't go there. They just said, Oh, you, I, I just, so, you know, yeah, I can understand how you mm-hmm. felt that way. They just went with this feeling. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so he felt very validated in the group. He said it was the best he'd ever been treated mm-hmm. in his life by other people. Um, and so th- there, th- even then, this is a person with a pretty serious psychiatric diagnosis yeah. who managed to go through their group. And I don't think we fixed his, his yes. diagnosis. It was just that he had a really positive experience. So he felt better about himself at the end. Um, he still had his conspiracy theories and other things going on. <laughs> um, but uh, but he, he, he was uh, smart and funny and mm-hmm, he was able mm-hmm. to relate people in the group. So he did all right. And we, we've had plenty of people who've been in psychiatric care or seeing a therapist who've mm-hmm. come to our group for the veterans and benefited. And they often will say, oh, I would never have told this to my therapist. Mm-hmm. But then they go back to therapy and they're better off with a kind of self-knowledge. One of them actually went back to her psychiatrist with a list of things she needed help with from her psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist (laughs) said to her, thank you for this. I'm glad the group was helpful to you. This list will make me a better psychiatrist. Now I I really know how to help you. Right? So Uh, so we see what we're doing and not as competing with that, that we are 
we, we can do some things that therapy can't yes. do and can help. What's so interesting as you explain this, the groups aren't about fixing or commenting or saying you're right or wrong. It's like this, I don't know if you ever explain, you know, being held to be truly listened to is to be truly loved in a way, isn't it? Yeah. And most of us um, don't listen well to ourselves. Yeah. Uh, this is the Buddhist principle that you're not your thoughts and you're mm-hmm. not your feelings, but we are very attached to our experiences and our feelings and our evaluations and our stories. So we're very attached to that thing in our brains that holds all of those things, our memories and all of that. And um, in Buddhism, there's the person, there is the observer who holds those things and becoming aware of the observer makes you able to let those things flow through you as part of who you are, but not be latched onto them and attached to them, Mm -hmm. which is the Buddhist definition of freedom is Mm non-attachment, right? Yeah. And it's not annihilation of yourself or or the disvaluing of those things, but understanding that all of those things are fleeting Yes. And so you don't have to become attached to your pain. Yes. Or attached to a particular story. They just become part of the flow of your life. Mm-hmm. And that <clears throat> that flow, that sense means that you actually attend to your thoughts and feelings in a way that you can let them go. Mm-hmm. And that's very different from thinking that you are your thoughts and feelings. Yeah. And that's a quality of listening to yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, that quiet, being able to quiet all of those things to actually be present to yourself in this actual moment, in this flesh, at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's what I think the breathing helps with. Because when you bring... you, The other thing Buddhists know is that all of that breathing and stuff yeah. is so much easier in a group. It's because you, your body's... A, there's something that happens in the group that it makes it much easier to do somebody's counting for you you don't have to do all of it yourself um and uh and and if you can get people to breathe enough they will become much more present in their body and in the moment they are less attached to all that stuff uh and that's just how you listen to yourself and to others is listening one of the keys to help have systematic change because we have this perpetual distress and injury happening over generations. Yeah. How do we step, how do we evolve and step out of this from your perspective? Well. And and find hope and healing and resiliency in all of this. So I don't think there's one solution. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> but I do think that one thing that sometimes happens is that um, when a Previous, this is a, a theory that a woman who studied the literature of children of the Holocaust arrived at that sometimes when you belong to a generation mm-hmm. in which the generation before you or previous generations suffered atrocities, I mm-hmm. mean, things that are unimaginably horrible. Yeah. And, um, and they, and then you're a child of that, that it can be really difficult for you to feel any sense of worth in your own life because you didn't you didn't suffer like that. 
Mm-hmm. And it can make you feel like your life is too easy or trivial somehow. Hmm. Uh, like uh, that, that this other thing is so huge that it just mm-hmm. sort of washes over the next generation, even though they didn't suffer it. Yeah. And so as a child of that process, you can just become traumatized. You can take it on as if it were your own thing. And it dominates mm-hmm. your life in your agenda mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. a way that um, you become very attached to the trauma itself as mm. the meaning of your life. Yeah. And and um, the woman who developed this um, thing, Marianne Hirsch, she herself was a child of Holocaust survivors. Yeah. So so she, she has a personal investment in this understanding what she calls post-memory. She calls this this taking on a post-memory. And she... Um, says it can just um, erase a person's life mm. as their own life. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, or if the generation that follows the atrocity has mm. their own forms of trauma, then they all get mixed together. Yeah. And and, and it, car- it keeps re-traumatizing generations by mm-hmm. being carried over in that way. Yeah. So I think that the struggle is to honor that, atro- honor the, the survivors of atrocity in a way that doesn't reproduce it in the next generation mm-hmm. and yet at the same time isn't lost yeah. as, in, is, as information and wisdom that's historical and important for how the society lives forward and doesn't reproduce it. Yes. And that's a fine distinction. It's, mm-hmm. a, it, it's the distinction between inherited trauma and historical memory mm-hmm. and loving those who came before while also realizing this is not the life I now have, but I can use a life I now have. Yes. To honor those traditions yeah. without reproducing the trauma. Yeah. And and dealing with maybe the legacy of that trauma mm-hmm. that like you still got to deal with anti-Semitism. You yeah. still have to deal with some of those things. But um but your but your own life may not be threatened in the same way. So you have power to get elected to Congress or to yeah, do yeah. other things to make the change, right? Yes, um, yes. Then um, sort of stewing in the trauma. Mm. And yeah, being stuck there. Yeah, being stuck there. And and that's, that's, a, that's a subtle thing because you don't want to tell people who are activists and working that, 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 that there's something wrong with them. Yeah. Um, but I think we do need to attend to the forms of pain we carry. Yes. We all carry our own pain. Uh-huh. It's and a messy can, life. Yeah. And and the, the more we work to end that kind of suffering, mm-hmm. the better and more effective, I think, change agents we become. Mm-hmm. As we're not nearly so easy to throw off balance yeah. and we have a lifelong ability to keep at it with all the setbacks involved mm-hmm. without mm-hmm. just folding um, yes. or, or becoming cynical. That's, yes. that's the danger of moral injury is you become cynical. Hmm. So as we come to the close here, is there anything you want for those of us listening like to, to really know or any final wisdom or, you know, or something your heart wants to say around this all? I think we, we at least in the U.S., think way too much in terms of individual freedom and 
the individual as the primary unit of society. And so we do not attend to good relationships. We do not attend to how to help families and communities um, in any kind of adequate way. Um, we pay no attention to child care because it seems like an individual problem, apparently, mm -hmm. when in fact, well-raised children are a major gift to society and a beleaguered, poor and struggling mm -hmm. parent is, is, is struggling with so many things mm -hmm. and we don't offer any support for that sort of thing. So um, I think, and there are societies in which um, attention to the collective and the whole are much stronger in their value systems. Uh, and I think Canada actually is better at that than the U.S. Um, that, that if we don't shift our sense of where value lies mm -hmm. away from individual liberty, I think individual liberty is relative. Mm -hmm. I think love is an absolute. Mm -hmm. Um, that it would help us do better for each other if we um, stop thinking so much about our own well-being and mm -hmm. think about our well-being as in, it's like we talk about self-care. Well, self-care yeah. isn't really self-care. Yeah. Care of ourselves is how we also are well in relation to others. Mm -hmm. I, I really appreciate that uh, as a former biologist it speaks to the interdependence of this little blue planet this dot in space i mean it's all relationship isn't it yeah it's like when william shatner came off of this <laughs> he was weeping at the yes. sense of this blue you know that oh if everybody could just see what i saw this yeah. hole yeah. yeah 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 uh and there are you know and i i actually think that spiritual and religious systems do some of that work for us but it uh they've also uh at least in the u.s are sort of ossified in 500 year old forms of ritual i think it's time for uh maybe better climate change and community oriented forms of ritual that attend to what's really happening now What sparked your curiosity in this episode? Do you sense a resiliency that was hidden before? From the conversation, where is hope leading you? If you are enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, consider rating it, and sharing it with family and friends. This podcast is produced by McKillop United Church. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for the generosity of all of our donors. If you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com or mckillopunited.ca slash donate. Peace and blessings to you.